Hello, and welcome to Champagne and Murder, please. I am your host, Brittany. I hope everybody who celebrates Thanksgiving had a great Thanksgiving. I hope you got to see friends and family and that everybody behaved themselves, because <laughs> we know how that can go. Um, our Thanksgiving was a bit of a crazy time. Um, we were supposed to go and have Thanksgiving at my sister's house, but everybody there ended up being sick. So we had to change plans and kind of um, think on our toes. And we ended up having it here with um, other parts of the family. And it was nice to see them and hang out with them. And also, our fridge took a crap on Wednesday. And so we put everything in coolers and tried to keep everything cool and... It's been it's been a fun week. I'm glad last week is over. Um, but I hope you guys all had a great time. Um, tonight, what we are drinking is a Moet Rosé Imperial. It is supple on the palate, the beautiful fruity pink expression of the house's style. Those who prefer champagnes with intense flavors will be particularly well-matched to the lively and juicy Moet Rosé Imperial, which is made primarily from Pinot Noir. So I suggest you give that one a try. That one's a little bit more expensive than I usually like um, to spend, but it's very good, so it was worth it. Um, so yeah, I don't have really have anything else. Oh. Today is December 1st, and if you are like me and like to stress yourself out even more during the holidays, um, you do the elves for your children, and I usually have them come out like the day after Thanksgiving. I totally forgot, and the girls, of course, asked, where are the elves? And I'm like, they don't come until December, which is now. And I have to say, I don't think I'm going to do good again this year. I think this year, I do this to myself every time. Every time I do it to myself. But those fucking elves, they got to get moved. So I have an alarm set on my phone now so that I can actually remember, well, hopefully actually remember to do the elves. So... If you are also on the elf journey, um, Godspeed and best wishes for a fruitful, not forgetful elf season. <laughs> but with that, how about we get into the story? So for today's story, it's another one that's like kind of in my backyard. Sort of, kind of. Um, like the NIU Valentine's Day Massacre. It That was like in our backyard too. Um, but I think some of you who listen from the area will know who I'm talking about. And maybe if you're older, you'll have more of a memory of it. But December 3rd, 1957. It was the day that changed Kathy Sigmund Chapman's life forever. Chapman was just eight years old, and like nearly every child in Sycamore, she couldn't wait for the first snowfall. 
Chuck Rudolph, then 11 years old, remembers his little sister Maria rushing out to play with Kathy around 6 p.m. Just as the flurries and the dark night settled over the idyllic Midwestern town. But this story does not have a happy ending because you know what you're listening to. So we're going to start with Miss Maria. Maria Elizabeth Rudolph was born on March 12, 1950, to parents Michael and Frances Ivy Rudolph in Sycamore, Illinois. She was the youngest of the couple's four children. She had two sisters and a brother. And while many of the residents of Sycamore lived or worked on local farms, her father, Michael, worked at one of Sycamore's few factories, and her mother, Frances, was a homemaker. At the time of her abduction, because she gets abducted, Maria was seven years old, 44 inches tall, and weighed about 53 pounds. She had brown hair and brown eyes. She was an honor student and was, at the time, in second grade. She had also been awarded perfect attendance for Sunday school at the Evangelical Lutheran Church of St. John. So she's an all-around good little kid. Perfect. According to Maria's mother, she was a high-strung child saying, quote, my daughter was a nervous girl, and if she got in any trouble, would become hysterical, end quote. In a 1957 interview shortly after her daughter disappeared, she added, quote, someone would probably have to kill her to keep her quiet. I am the only one who could calm her down, end quote. Maria was also described as a screamer, that's unfortunate, and she was also afraid of the dark. Her best friend was eight-year-old Kathy Sigmund, who lived on the same street as the Rudolphs. On the evening of December 3, 1957, Maria had begged to be allowed outside, since it had started to snow. After she finished her dinner, Maria and Kathy went outside in the dark near Maria's house and played a game they called Duck the Cars. I don't know if any of you know what Duck the Cars means. But it's running back and forth trying to avoid the headlights of oncoming cars in the street. Like, kids being kids back then. So, according to Kathy, they had been approached by a man, whom Kathy would later describe to the police as being in his early 20s and tall with a slender chin, light hair, a gap in his teeth, and wearing a colorful sweater. The man who had said, had said his name was Johnny, quote-unquote, told the girls he was 24 years old and not married. He asked them if they liked dolls and if they liked piggyback rides. He gave Maria a piggyback ride, after which she went to her house and grabbed a doll to show him. After Maria returned, Kathy ran to her house to get her mittens, leaving Maria alone with the man. And when Kathy returned, both Maria and the man were nowhere to be seen. Kathy went to the Rudolphs' house to tell them she couldn't find Maria. Initially, the family thought that Maria was hiding, and they sent Maria's brother to look for her. And, of course, he was unable to find her, so the Rudolphs then called the police. And within an hour, police and armed civilians began to search the town. But they failed to locate Maria or this Johnny character. The FBI, presuming that Maria had been abducted across state lines, arrived in Sycamore within two days to help the local state police, local and state police, sorry, in the search. The FBI and police interviewed numerous witnesses that they had seen the girls 
playing outside by themselves between 6 and 6.30. They also spoke to family members who had seen Maria and Kathy while Maria was getting her doll from the house, and Kathy going to get her mittens. Based on these interviews, this Johnny person was thought to have approached the girls after 6.30, and the FBI came to the conclusion that Maria had been abducted between 6.45 and 7 p.m. Kathy was the only witness who had seen Johnny, and she was then placed into protective custody because the police and the FBI were afraid that the kidnapper would come back and harm her. The police had Kathy look at photos of convicted felons and other suspects that resembled Johnny. A man named John Tessier, I think that's how you say it, who would be convicted of the crime more than 50 years later, lived in the same neighborhood as the girls and was originally on the list of suspects based on a tip they had received. But the police failed to have Kathy identify him after he was able to provide an alibi for the night of the crime. In late December, Kathy was taken to the Dane, Dane County Sheriff's Office in Madison, Wisconsin, to again see a lineup of possible suspects. It was here she positively identified a man named Thomas Joseph Rivard, who was a 35-year-old man, about 5'4", and weighed 156 pounds with dark, blonde, wavy, or bushy hair. But as it turns out, Rivard also had an alibi, and it's a pretty solid one at that. He was in jail at the time of the kidnapping. Police suspected that someone else in their lineup had been the real culprit and that Rivard was just an addition to the lineup just to fill it out. Rivard also did not physically resemble Tessier, who was about six inches taller and 17 years younger. When asked years later about the 1957 lineup, Kathy said she did not remember picking Rivard out of the lineup. The disappearance of Maria received national news coverage and both President Dwight D. Eisenhower and the FBI director, J. Edgar Hoover, became interested in the case. Law enforcement continued to investigate leads and other suspects in the area, including transients and known sex offenders. And even a local man who gave piggyback rides to children in the area, but they didn't come up with any solid leads. Maria's parents turned to TV and other media to plead for their daughter's safe return and asked for the public's help to find her. April 26, 1958, near Woodbine, Illinois, two tourists were searching for mushrooms in a wooded area along U.S. Route 20, and they discovered skeletal remains of what they thought was a small child. The, these remains were... Wearing only a shirt. You can't really say the remains were wearing them, but just, just go with it. Just go with it. So it was wearing only a shirt, undershirt, and socks, and the remains were under a partially fallen tree. The level of decomposition indicated that the body had been there for several months. The remains were positively identified as Maria Rudolph based on the dental records, a lock of her hair, and the shirt and socks she had been wearing when she went missing. The rest of Maria's clothing items, including her coat, pants, shoes, and underwear, were never found. There were no photos taken at the crime scene because the coroner, James Furlong, didn't want the photos to be leaked to the press. And since the crime had occurred inside state lines, the FBI then withdrew from the case and left it to the state and local police. The initial autopsy could not determine the cause of death due to the state of decomp. 
But during an autopsy done 50 years later, a forensic anthropologist who was able to determine, determine Maria had likely been stabbed several times in her throat. The police had a list of suspects, and the first was John Tessier. He was born John Cherry on November 27, 1939, in Belfast, Northern Ireland, to a British sergeant, Samuel Cherry, and his wife, Eileen McCullough Cherry. Samuel was killed early in World War II, and during the war, Eileen served as one of the first female airplane spotters in the UK's Royal Air Force. She met Ralph Tessier, who was serving with the United States 8th Ar Army Air Force at RAF Bovingdon, England. I don't know if that's how you say that, and I'm so sorry, because I forgot to look it up. In November 1944, the two married, and after the war, Eileen and her son John, then age seven, followed Ralph to Sycamore, Illinois. Ralph and Eileen had six more children over the years, and after his mother's marriage, John used the last name Tessier, although still some called him John Cherry. So he was using either or. The Tessier family home was less than two blocks around the corner from the Ridolph home. Ralph Tessier was a sign painter, and he had painted the insignia on the doors of the Sycamore police cars. And so he was pretty friendly with the chief of police. John was expelled from school in the 10th grade for pushing a teacher and calling her a name. At the time Maria disappeared, John was 18 years old and living at home with his parents and siblings, and he had plans to join the U.S. Air Force. December 4th, investigators paid a visit to the Tessier home as part of the, their neighborhood search. According to John's half-sisters, Catherine and Jeannie, their mother told investigators that John had been home on the night of December 3rd, something that they would later testify was not true. And shortly after that, Maria's body was found, and the FBI investigated John as a possible suspect. Sources differ on whether the investigation was triggered by a tip from a local resident or John's own parents who were trying to clear their son, who they felt resembled the general description of quote-unquote Johnny. John and his parents told the FBI that on December 3rd, John was in Rockford, Illinois, about 40 miles northwest of Sycamore, to enlist in the Air Force. He told them he was in Chicago on December 2nd and 3rd to undergo physical exams that were a requirement for his enlistment. On the morning of December 3rd, he visited the Chicago recruiting station, and after that, he spent the day sightseeing in Chicago before he returned to Rockford via train that evening which arrived at 6.45 p.m. When he arrived in Rockford, he says he called his parents to ask for a ride home since he had taken the train to and from Chicago and had left his own car at home. Phone records later showed that a collect call had been placed from the Rockford post office to the Tessier home at 6.57 p.m. that evening by someone who gave his name as John Tessier. That's how it was written down by the operator. So she could have gotten it wrong. I mean, it's one letter. After he made his call, he went to meet with officers from the Rockford recruiting station to drop off some paperwork relating to his enlistment. The officers at the office confirmed they had spoken to John around 7.15 that evening, although one officer had expressed some concern about John's credibility and conduct. John was brought to the police station for a lie detector test, which he passed, 
But we all know those tests are inadmissible in court because they are wholly unreliable. But in view of his alibi and the test result, John Tessier was taken off the suspect list and the FBI closed out his report on December 10th, noting, quote, no further investigation is being conducted regarding the above suspect, end quote. Kathy was never even shown a photograph of John or asked to identify him, and John left Sycamore the next day to report for basic training at Lakeland Air Force Base. So John served in the military for 13 years, and he rose to the rank of captain. After he left the service, he moved to Seattle, Washington. And in 1974, he became a police officer in the small town of Lacey near Olympia. Later, he joined the Milton Police Department, where he butt heads with the chief of police, who attempted to fire him and documented a long list of complaints about his work and his conduct. In 1982, in Tacoma, Washington, John took in a 15-year-old runaway named Michelle Weinman and her friend who knew John as a Milton police officer. Michelle later testified that shortly after she moved in with John, he fondled her and then performed oral sex on her. John was charged with statutory rape, which is a felony. After some plea negotiations, he eventually pleaded guilty to communication with a minor for immoral purposes, which is a misdemeanor. He was sentenced to one year of formal probation and was terminated from the Milton Police Department on March 10, 1982. On April 27, 1994, John changed his name to Jack Daniel McCullough stating that he wanted to honor his late mother. And by 2011, Jack, or John, I think I'll just go with Jack now that he changed his name, now in his early 70s, was living in a retirement community in northwest Seattle, and he was working as a security guard. Another suspect they had was named William Henry Redmond. In 1997, Sycamore Police Lieutenant Patrick Solar closed the, the then 40-year-old Rudolph case, naming William Henry Redman, a former truck driver and carnival worker from Nebraska, who had died in 1992, as the likely person who abducted and killed Maria. Redmond had been charged in 1988 with the 1951 murder of an 8-year-old Pennsylvania girl, although that case was dismissed because a police officer wouldn't reveal the name of a confidential informant. I thought that was kind of the point of confidential, to not be revealed. But what do I know? Redmond was also a suspect in the 1951 disappearance of a 10-year-old girl named Beverly Potts in Ohio. And according, according to Solar, Redmond told a fellow inmate that he committed a crime similar to the Rudolph abduction and murder. Solar also believed that Redmond's appearance and behavior matched that of the elusive Johnny. Solar's report was criticized due to the lack of any supporting evidence and his alleged political motivations. Solar acknowledged that the evidence against Redmond was circumstantial and that if Redmond had lived, it would have been pretty difficult to convict him in Maria's case unless he were to confess. And for that reason, Solar called Maria's case quote, closed but not solved, end quote, leaving open the possibility that maybe later a better suspect could be found. 
When Jack was later tried in Maria's case, the trial judge ruled out any testimony about Redmond on the grounds that he was not a credible suspect. In 2008, Maria's case was reopened. based on new information from Jack's half-sister, Janet. According to Janet, their mother, on her deathbed in January 1994, had said, quote, Those two little girls and the one that disappeared, John did it. John did it, and you have to tell someone, end quote. Janet took that statement to mean that her half-brother, John, had kidnapped and murdered Maria Rudolph. She had also heard from her older sisters that their mother had lied to the investigators and that then John was home the night of the crime. Another half-sister, Mary Pat, was also present when Eileen had spoken to Janet, but later testified that she had only heard her mother say, quote-unquote, he did it. Mary Pat nevertheless testified that she had come to the same conclusion as Janet and that her older sisters had suspected John of the murder for years. At the time, Eileen, fighting cancer, was on morphine and was disoriented. Jack, who allegedly once threatened to kill Janet with a gun and allegedly sexually molested his half-sister Jeannie when she was a minor, had been estranged from the family by the time of Eileen's death and was told not to attend her funeral. Janet says that she made several attempts over the next 14 years to get law enforcement, including the Sycamore Police and the FBI, to look into her mother's statement, but to no avail. Solar told CNN that Janet had never spoken to him, but that he would not have suspected Jack because he knew the Tessier family and Jack had been cleared in 1957. In 2008, Janet emailed an Illinois State Police tip line resulting in the State Police Cold Case Unit undertaking a lengthy investigation into Jack's background and alibi. Janet's sisters, Catherine and Jeannie, told investigators of their suspicions. Another woman alleged that Jack had given her a piggyback ride as a child and he had refused to put her down until her father intervened. State police investigators reviewed evidence and developed a new timeline under which Jack could have kidnapped Maria and driven to Rockford in time to make the phone call at 6.57 and meet with recruiting officers at 7.15. Under the new timeline, they determined that Maria would have been kidnapped no later than 6.20. The police search for Maria had been underway by 7 p.m., according to Catherine, who said she had returned home from a party at 7 to find the search was in progress. Hoping to have Kathy review a photo lineup, police had taken five photos from the 1957 Sycamore High School yearbook. But, if you remember... Jack was expelled, so his photo wasn't in there. So police instead obtained a photo of him from a former girlfriend, and Kathy identified the photo of Jack. Along with the photo, the former girlfriend provided an unused, military-issued train ticket from Rockford to Chicago, dated December 1957. Investigators took this to suggest that contrary to Jack's alibi, He had not taken the train on his trip to Chicago and had instead taken his own car there, which would mean that he could have driven back to Sycamore on the afternoon of December 3rd, kidnapped Maria, and drove to Rockford. The police located a high school friend of Jack's who recalled seeing his distinctively painted car in Sycamore that afternoon and said that he had never let anyone else drive his car, so it would have had to have been Jack. 
In July 2011, the Seattle Police Department, who had joined with the Illinois State Police in the investigation, brought in Jack for questioning. They used a professional interrogator due to Jack's previous law enforcement experience. And at first, Jack was calm and cooperative, but when he was faced with the questions about the murder of Maria and his whereabouts on the night of the crime, he became evasive and aggressive. And if, and this is a big if, he is innocent, I think it's a reasonable response to get aggravated and evasive. I don't know. not Maybe not evasive, but aggressive and pissed off that you're being accused of something. I can see that, but I don't know. After Jack refused to answer any more of the investigators' questions, he was arrested for the kidnapping and murder of Maria Rudolph, and he was extradited to Illinois. Maria's body was exhumed that same month to check for any DNA evidence, but they did not find any. This is when the forensic anthropologists that I mentioned before found that Maria had been stabbed in the throat at least three times by a long, sharp blade, pointing out nicks in her sternum and neck vertebrae, consistent with, quote-unquote, at least three slashes to her throat. Although the stabbing was considered a likely cause of death, an appellate court later stated that the findings did not preclude other possible causes of death, such as strangulation, which could not be adequately investigated due to the decomposition of the soft tissue. News of the arrest in the 54-year-old case drew national attention, but the lead prosecutor, DeKalb County State's Attorney Clay Campbell, was reluctant to take the case. Due to the age of the case and the lack of any physical evidence connecting Jack to the crime, but, after being persuaded by both the Rudolph and Tessier families, he formally charged Jack with the kidnapping and murder of Maria Rudolph. At the trial in September 2012, the prosecution contended that John had been attracted to Maria and decided to kidnap her, but instead, he ended up killing her. Although prosecutors did suspect that John had molested Maria, they couldn't prove it, and so they didn't bring it up in court. The prosecution had numerous witnesses to testify, including Maria's family members, neighbors, law enforcement personnel, and Kathy Sigmund Chapman, who was the witness and identified Jack as Johnny, the man who had walked up to the two girls 50 years earlier. Another childhood friend of Maria's testified that she too had been offered a piggyback ride from Johnny and identified him as Jack. Three inmates who had been in jail with John, Jack testified that he talked about killing Maria. However, their stories were both inconsistent and failed to match the evidence indicating Maria had been stabbed. One inmate said Jack spoke of strangling Maria with a wire, and the another said Jack accidentally smothered her in an attempt to get her to stop screaming. Which, with what the mother said, I feel like that might be plausible. John's defense argued that the prosecutors and police were pressured by the Rudolph and Tessier families to solve the case and to implicate Jack. Although there was no physical evidence, motive, or indication that Jack was in the area when Maria was kidnapped, Jack did not take the stand in his own defense on the advice of his attorneys, and he's smart because he listened to them. September 14, 2012, Jack was convicted of the kidnapping and murder of Maria Rudolph and had received a life sentence with a possibility of parole after 20 years, and he was 73 years old at the time of his sentencing. 
Jack appealed his convictions. On February 13, 2015, the Illinois Appellate Court upheld his murder conviction but vacated the convictions for kidnapping and abduction of an infant as being outside the three-year statute of limitations in effect for those crimes in 1957. But that decision didn't... I don't know why it says abduction of an infant. I know you were thinking that. I was thinking that. But that's what it said. Sorry. So anyway... That decision did not affect his life sentence as the sentencing court had provided that the sentences for kidnapping and abduction would merge into his life sentence for murder. Although the appellate court ruled that Eileen's deathbed statement should not have been admitted as evidence against John, the court declined to overturn the murder conviction because Judge Halleck did not rely heavily upon the statement in issuing the conviction. Also in 2015, Jack, acting pro se, filed a petition for post-conviction relief asking that his murder conviction be set aside. After his petition was initially dismissed by the court for being, quote, frivolous and without merit, end quote, the public defender who originally defended Jack and who had continued to investigate the case asked the court to reconsider the dismissal. Jack filed a successive motion that could not be denied without a hearing from the state's attorney's office. In response to the motions, DeKalb County State Attorney Richard Schmack, yes, that's his actual name, who had taken over for Clay Campbell, conducted an extensive review of all the evidence, which led Schmack to con conclude that Jack could not have committed the crime, and in truth, he was innocent. According to Schmack, evidence was kept out of the trial that clearly established Jack's whereabouts the evening of Maria's abduction and supported Jack's alibi. In particular, the phone records from Illinois Bell show that Jack made a collect call to his mother that evening from a payphone in downtown Rockford, and the icy road conditions, Schmack concluded that Jack could not have possibly been in Sycamore at the time of Maria's disappearance. It is really hard to go from saying Jack to John, just so you know. <laughs> it's driving me nuts. I just keep wanting to say John. On April 15, 2016, Judge William P. Brady of the Illinois Circuit Court vacated John's original conviction and sentenced and ordered that there be a new trial. Jack, who remained charged with the crime, was released on bond that day pending the new trial. A week later, Judge Brady dismissed the charges against him. However, the dismissal was without prejudice, meaning that Jack could be tried again for the, mur the murder of Maria Ridolph should a prosecutor wish to do so. Brady postponed ruling on a request by Maria's brother Charles, backed by signatures of hundreds of Sycamore residents, including the city's mayor, that a special prosecutor be appointed to replace Schmack on John's case. Jack's case. See? Dang it. On August 5th, 2016, Judge Brady denied the motion for a special prosecutor, and Charles said he would not appeal the decision. Jack wasn't declared innocent of the murder until April 12, 2017. But as for Miss Maria Ridolph, her memory lives on. The Maria Ridolph Memorial Map is an, was an eight-foot square map of sycamore constructed of steel and porcelain and was mounted in 1958 on the front exterior of the Sycamore Municipal Building. In 2002, the map was removed and it was replaced with a bronze memorial plaque that was installed on a pedestal outside of the same building. 
The Rudolph family also established a Maria Rudolph Memorial Fund that was originally used to pay for the memorial map and was later used as a scholarship, compassion, and summer camp fund for local children in need. A portion of the proceeds from Charles Lackman's 2014 book about the case, Footsteps in the Snow, if you want to check it out, was donated to that fund. So, still not really solved because he was declared innocent, but I feel like all of the information from his story seems to be legit, so I I don't know how I feel about it. I just don't know which way to go. But that was Maria Ridolph and mostly John Tessier, but I felt like he needed to be told to just in case he's a victim as well. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to Champagne and Murder. Please, we really do love doing this for you. We appreciate you. Um, I hope that you guys have a great weekend. I know I say it every time. And a great week. Um, Let's uh, kick this holiday season off right, shall we? Start it on a good note. Um, Happy December 1st. And I hope next week Vanessa will come back and grace us with her presence. We shall see. But... I will talk to you guys next week. Stay safe out there. And remember, don't take candy from strangers. Bye.